thank you for joining us here on uh, Van Velden Delphi Legal News on Waterberg Stereo. The program is sponsored by De Wet and De Villiers Brokers. I will firstly be uh, discussing the court application brought by the Minerals Council of South Africa um, regarding the once empowered, always empowered principle related to black economic empowerment with uh, Alicia Kuzak. I think that's a very important case and uh, she will explain to us what the outcome of the court case was and what lessons we can uh, learn from uh, that, which I think uh, has uh, some far-reaching uh, consequences for anybody affected by uh, BEE uh, requirements or broad-based black economic empowerment, re empowerment uh, requirements. Then secondly, Rejo Maracala will uh, talk to us about uh, a case which I also think is rather important, dealing with occupiers of tribal land, bringing an application against the Ngonyama Trust in respect of land occupied by them in KwaZulu-Natal. And the Rejo will explain to us what the court found in respect of, amongst others, rental that was charged by the trust from these occupiers, whether that's legal or not, and uh, all related uh, issues, etc. So please uh, stay tuned for those two uh, discussions. My name is Falke Kruger from Van Ferden Duffy Attorneys. Today I'm going to talk to Alicia Kuzak about a very important case, I believe, for mining law and specifically uh, related to uh, broad-based black economic empowerment. Uh, thanks for joining us, Alicia. Hi, sir. Thank you for having me. The case is Minerals Council of South Africa against the Minister of Mineral Resources and Energy and 13 others. Uh, this uh, case was also widely reported on in the press. And um, yeah, before we get to the facts and the decision of the court, uh, Alicia, maybe you can just, for the sake of our listeners, sort of briefly explain how the government ensures that BE, Black Economic Empowerment, is advanced with the grant, granting of mining rights? So um, the government has attempted to ensure that Black Economic Empowerment or that BE rights are advanced um, actually through the promulgation of the Act. So the Mineral and Petroleum Resources Development Act, which I'll hear after just refer to as the Act because it has such a long name, um, specifically makes provision for certain BEE objects to or objectives to be achieved. So if I could, for example, you know, uh, give an example, uh, one of the objectives is that um, they must substantially and meaningfully expand opportunities for historically disadvantaged persons, including women and communities, to enter into and actively participate in the mineral and petroleum industries and to benefit from the exploitation of the nation's mineral and petroleum resources. Um, they also state that uh, they must promote employment and advance the social and economic welfare of all South Africans. Okay. So this is essentially the government's attempt to ensure that mining rights are still BEE compliant. Okay, so you can't get a mining right from government, which you obviously need to mine in South Africa. You can't just start a mine. You need that mining right from government if you um, haven't complied with their requirements, which would then include the BEE requirements. So what would the role of the mining charter that is often referred to then be in this whole process? 
So the act then later states, so these objectives are kind of broadly stated in the second section of the act, so right at the beginning. And then later in the act, um, it is actually stated that the minister must develop a charter that will set the framework for the targets and timetables for um, effecting these objectives. So the charter is basically a guideline that the minister provides to persons who are applying for mineral rights um, as to how they must achieve these B objects. And this is important because the minister can only grant a mining right if the granting of the right will further the socio-economic empowerment objects that are contained in the charter. So essentially, the charter is the minister's way of telling the public how to achieve the BEE objectives that are stated in the beginning of the Act. All right, so the Parliament obviously enacted the initial Act and then gave the Minister the power uh, uh, to um, delegate it, in other words, the legislative powers to make further rules and regulations, in this case specifically in the form of a mining charter, uh, which has uh, more detail in terms of what the, mi what the mining companies have to um, uh, adhere to and comply with. So maybe we can get um, to this case. What application was brought by the Minerals Council of South Africa? So in this case, the Minerals Council instituted an application to review and set aside certain provisions of what is known as either the Mining Charter 3 or the 2018 Mining Charter. So there were various aspects of this charter that were contentious, you could say, but specifically one of the issues was that the charter stipulated that applicants who wanted to renew or transfer their mining rights had to comply with the BE ownership target of 30%, even though the previous target was 26%. So essentially, these persons, let's say, had obtained their mining rights by complying with the 26% BEE target. And now all of a sudden, the charter said, well, irrespective of the fact that you previously complied with this requirement, we are now going to change it to 30%. And the Minerals Council said that the minister lacked the power to publish this charter in a manner that suggested that it was a legislative instrument or a law. And secondly, that the clauses that they sought to review were unauthorized uh, by the Act, and therefore the decision to publish them as part of the Charter um, was materially influenced by an error of law. Um, so essentially, I think many question, people might question why is it relevant whether the Charter is considered to be a law or not. And basically, the importance hereof is that a law is applicable to all mining rights holders. So that would be past or present. Whereas if the Charter is considered to be a policy um, and a guideline, it only pertains to the granting of new mining rights and not those mining rights that have already been obtained. So this case pertains to the renewal of a mining right, am I right? 
Yes, so they didn't seek, the Minerals Council didn't have an issue with imposing a 30% BE shareholding requirement on new applications for mining rights. They merely said that you cannot now amend the rights that people have already obtained. Those rights that were established on the basis of a 20% BE shareholding must you know, continue to exist, notwithstanding the new requirements for new mining rights. All right, so the Minerals Council was successful with its applications. Is, is that the crux of the finding of the court? Was there anything to add to that? No, they were ultimately successful. There's a lot of technicalities. The law went into, or the court rather went into the interpretation of the law and the wording of the law and the intention of, you know, uh, all the parties and um, parliament. And ultimately they found that um, the Minerals Council is correct. And they specifically, and I think this is what many persons are reporting in, on is the court confirmed what is known as the once empowered, always empowered principle. So they said that if these persons were empowered to transfer their mining rights or to renew their mining rights because they at some stage complied with the requirements that were set, then they remain to be empowered, notwithstanding whatever the new charter says. Right. Because, yeah, that was pretty much what was reported in the press as well, that this finding basically approves the once empowered, always empowered principle. So so would you say that black shareholders can thus sell to white shareholders without affecting the BE status of the relevant company for purposes of an existing mining right? In other words, like in circumstances as, as, the, uh, as this um, court application pertained to? Yes, that is absolutely what it means. So if you have a mining right, which means that you at any stage achieved a minimum of a 26% BE shareholding, you will be considered to be compliant with the BE requirements of the mining charter for the duration of your mining right. So forever, irrespective of what your current BE status is. Because I mean, unfortunately, it may be the case that black shareholders sell their shares to white shareholders, which could affect your BEE shareholding. Um, and then all of a sudden, it would seem that you're not compliant. But now this case confirms that no, even if your shareholding is now lower than the tw even the 26%, you are considered to be BEE compliant and you can proceed to renew or transfer your mining rights. That, of course, also makes it easier for those black shareholders to indeed sell their shares if they want to do so because they would then uh, not be limited to selling it to another black shareholder. No? They could then also uh, sell it to a white shareholder and maybe get a better price or uh, more readily you know, uh, be able to sell those shares. So in that sense, I guess one could argue it also helps those uh, existing uh, black shareholders of such companies. Yeah, I think, of course, you wouldn't want them to essentially feel trapped um, to an extent in this company or corporation or whatever the case may be that they no longer want to be part of. I don't think, you know, that's in the best interest of any party. Um, it is maybe worth noting, though, that not all the provisions of this 2018 mining charter were reviewed and set aside. So some of the provisions of the charter are still applicable to, if I could refer to it as such, old mining right holders. So these would include... Um, 
clauses that pertain to employment equity, human resource development, mine community development, housing and living conditions. Those clauses remain applicable to you no matter when you obtained your mining right. It is only the BE clauses that have been reviewed and set aside in as far as um, you have already obtained a mining right. Yeah, thank you, Alicia. My name is Falker Kruger. I asked uh, Refo Marakala to uh, look into a court case that was uh, fairly recently reported and application brought by the Council for the Advancement of the South African Constitution against the Ngonyama Trust. And I think this is a rather important development in our law in respect of the rights of occupiers of tribal land. Uh, thanks for joining us, uh, Refo. Thank you so much, Volker, and thank you for all the listeners who are tuning in. So, yeah, I don't know, maybe you can just give us a bit of a background for this case and also explain to us what the facts of the matter were. Yes, um, perhaps it will be good to just give the listeners a little bit of, of some background, um, historical background, very brief. Um, and that is um, it's important for this particular decision or judgment. Um, as with some of us would know, before South Africa became a democracy, you know, prior to 1994, a part of uh, certain um, places within South Africa, especially in the KwaZulu-Natal, was the Bantustan or self-governing homeland for the majority of black South Africans who were removed from white-only urban areas. Now, what transpired was that when apartheid ended, there was various changes which took into 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 uh, uh, took took to the fore. And in particular, the Ingonyama Trust was established, um, particularly in respect of KwaZulu Natala, um, to manage uh, a portion of land about 2.8 million hectares. And the purpose of that was to manage the land that belonged to the KwaZulu Natal um, government then for the benefit of the Zulu communities who were living in it who did not necessarily have direct property ownership in the sense of having title uh, title deeds, especially for people in villages and so forth. Now, across South Africa, tribal authorities, you know, they always argued that they are the custodians of the land and that uh, was communal before even the European uh, colonialism. And they often control access to the resources of such land, including negotiating deals with mining companies and so forth. Now, it gives the backdrop of this particular matter because now when coming to the facts of this matter, um, about seven people or more or so were in this particular application were single mothers, pensioners, and they were basically seeking for the court um, to restore their traditional land rights and to have a refund on the rents that they had paid to the trust after signing certain lease agreements that were um, passed to them by the trust. Now, in excess of about 10,000 or so, lease agreements were concluded and the majority of those particular um, uh, village communities or members, they did not have any clue of idea what they were signing. And the trust, you know, they had an administration fee of, you know, of the lease agreements and so forth. Now, since about 2007, the trust was um, unlawfully compelling the residents to conclude these particular lease agreements and pay rental to the trust you know, um, to continue living in the land. And um, that's when it started to be, to create a problem. Um, as, as some of the listeners would know that we have um, 
informal land rights which are protected in South Africa. Now, these uh, particular lease agreements, they argue that, you know, they diluted their existing informal land rights and um, the lease agreements were illegal because they requested them to pay rent which um, on land which their families have occupied for generations and generations. Um, now, essentially, that work then was at their homes that they have built out, um, essentially belong to the trust. And um, the residents then started complaining about this whole issue, and that's when they approached the court um, and so forth to have their issues ventilated. Okay, um, yeah, interesting uh, decision that the court then had to, to make. So, so who won the case? It was the residents. Um, an order was granted in their favor. Um, and the reasoning of the decision is quite very, um, very clear. And it's a very groundbreaking judgment to the fact that um, having to require um, um, and this is against the backdrop of customary um, law. And that is that in most um, informal settlements, um, where there's a king or there's a headman or there's a there's, there's a chief, um, the land does not necessarily belong to the king or to the chief. It's called communal land. So, in other words, like from where I come from in Mansarre, um, when I get there and I want a particular portion of land. I won't, I won't get a title deed for that particular specific uh, piece of land. What I'll have is the enjoyment to use that particular land because I'll be a Mopalani by virtue of that. In essence, what I'm trying to say is that the land is not necessarily owned by a particular individual. And when someone wants to evict me, I can simply put up a title deed to say that this is my land. It's a communal land that is owned and, and each and every individual within that particular uh, village will benefit um, from that particular land. So in Arriving at their decision, you know, the court took into consideration the Ipirla, Ipirla, which is essentially um, uh, an act that was established to, 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 to give security of tenor and recognize the injustice of the, of the past and also give um, sort of like um, a standing or a right to informal rights that have been um, especially by people who live in particular pieces of land without necessarily having security tenor. So in giving their decision, you know, the court considered all these particular outcomes and they even held that it was quite very illegal for the trusts to force these people to enter into lease agreements because the consequential effect of that was that it was akin to saying that um, I'm administering your land on your behalf and I'm requiring you to pay monies on a land and a house that you built in 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 your own property so it was it, it was quite a very uh, groundbreaking judgment where the court said that um obviously the trust had abused their powers and the chief or rather the king um formerly um uh, king kwazulu uh, forgot the king's name, uh, he passed on, recently passed on, but he was essentially saying that um, what the trust was doing was, was, was unconstitutional and it 
definitely disregarded Section 25 of the Constitution and Iperla informal rights um, of those particular individuals within the community in coming to their decision. And they ordered that um, the trust should actually um, pay back some of the monies that were paid towards them as rental because there were other individuals who had signed these particular lease agreements and paid rental to the trust. And they were ordered that the trust must refund all these monies. Um, and they also declared that all the lease agreements were to be declared invalid. What do you think will be the consequences of, of this? What sort of lessons do we learn? I suppose this could lead to some other court applications brought in respect of other tribal land in the country as, as well. And I guess one could also argue um, it, it could be a good development for the economy if, if there will be more certainty in respect of the type of title that the occupiers of tribal land now hold. Um, maybe to the extent that they might in the future indeed get their own title deeds in respect of every stand so that they can then, um, you know, make improvements and know that it's it's theirs and they can pass it on to their families after they've uh, passed away and even maybe get loans from banks with, uh, with the property as security, etc. Yes, I most definitely. I want you just to add two points from that. And the first point would be from a governmental administration perspective and also from a legal perspective. Now, from a government uh, administrative uh, consequences is that obviously the judgment would have massive implications for the government and their land reform program. Now, this will in turn mean that their Turner reform policy that is yet to be delivered um, insofar as legislation for the security of land rights of people mostly in communal areas. And that the fact that legislation is, you know, legislation is required by the constitution is still absent. You know, um, it's quite very saddening after 27 years of democracy and freedom. And that's a major blemish. Um, but uh, unless others may argue that the reason for the for the gap was primarily political and centered centered around mostly of the contested roles of powers of traditional leaders and the shifting of change of you know uh, democracy and trying to um, mold it between traditional leaders and pre-1994 constitutional democracy but those are issues that the government will then have to um, in, in, uh, discuss and, and, and really ponder about insofar as land reform is concerned. Now, on the second point, um, as, as, as the point that I raised, that what is the consequences insofar as the legal implications are concerned, and what this judgment would mean is that um, for land rights, um, primarily in communal areas, a home to the largest proportion of rural South Africans I mean, they almost, I think, research uh, shows that they are one third of the population of which that, that is very major, you know, and that um, these areas will provide essential resources such as, you know, services and livelihoods of the poorest section of, the, of South Africa. Now, the, the, the issue would, would say that it will then, from a legal perspective, characterize these land rights um, to say that land that is allotted or rather given to a family head. In other words, Volker, you pass on and when you pass on, 
it does not necessarily mean that after your passing on the land or the property to which you, you your children were raised in would would be alienated it will mean that your children will still have those particular rights um, to stay at that particular property and their children and their children's children and so forth and so forth and so forth now I'm uncertain uh, Volker insofar as administration of estate is concerned whereby um, a client comes into the office and and wants to consult with you and the only property that he has is situated in a in a, in, a, in, a, in a in a village in particular it's a communal land and would want to say that you know what i want to bequeath uh, this particular property let's say to my grandson who's in cape town um and are there any particular uh, uh, issues that will arise there upon the death of such an individual um, given the fact that um, most of the traditional leaders, when you want to transfer their property, they will say that we cannot transfer this property because this is communal land. We cannot, in other words, give you a title deed, you know, and I don't know if ever you've encountered such uh, circumstances. Yeah, so unfortunately, there also is a lot of uncertainty as to how one should deal with that in a deceased estate. What we typically do is we do uh, show all those uh, rights, uh, specifically in respect of the improvements that were made to the land uh, that is tribal land. Uh, and then we deal with that in the liquidation distribution account uh, to uh, ensure that at least it, it's recorded um, to assist uh, the family that would uh, then take over that relevant uh, piece of land in the future. But also from, from that point of view, it would uh, certainly be much better for all the families and the occupiers involved uh, if there could be more certainty. If uh, they could, for example, indeed have a title deed registered at the uh, deeds office, which could then be transferred from the deceased estate to the relevant uh, beneficiaries. So also in terms of winding up deceased estates, I think it would be um, would be a, a, a good idea. Would help a lot uh, if uh, if there would be more certainty in terms of the law in that regard. But yeah, it's an interesting debate, certainly, uh, Rico. Uh, thank you for that explanation. I I, I think um, uh, this uh, might uh, sort of open a can of worms, and I'm pretty sure that uh, there will be a lot more court cases dealing with tribal land in the future. And once again, hopefully, we can have more uh, certainty uh, from a legal point of uh, of view. Thank you. That's all we have uh, time for today. Remember, our email address is info at vvd.co.za. Thanks for uh, listening. Uh, make sure that you tune in again next week, Wednesday, between 3 o'clock and 4 o'clock, and then also on Friday evenings.